Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Blue Room. We have got a really rich episode for you today. Uh, I first met Lynn Horan when we had this conversation, and I consider her a new friend and one who really provided a lot of food for thought and reflection. This episode coincides with Section 3 of Hope a User's Manual. The section is called Hope Lives in the Body. And that can be a challenging topic for many of us who like to live up in our heads, which is one of my favorite places to live. Uh, But Lynn is going to help us sort through some of that. The Reverend Lynn Horan is an interfaith theologian and leadership consultant specializing in women's leadership development in both spiritual and secular contexts. She is currently a doctoral fellow through Antioch University's PhD program in leadership and change, and she is exploring embodied leadership and the gendered construction of professional boundaries in her work. Her current research on female clergy attrition will be featured at the Global Center for Religious Research's International Conference on Religious Trauma, and her work on embodied social change will be published in an upcoming book, Leadership at the Spiritual Edge, Emerging and Non-Western Concepts of Leadership and Spirituality, published by Rutledge Studies in Leadership Research. Lynn is a former health policy analyst for the New York State Senate and cross-cultural family counselor, having worked in homeless advocacy and domestic violence prevention in communities in upstate New York and central Peru. You'll hear a little bit about that work. A trained dancer and yoga practitioner, Lynn believes strongly in the restorative capacity of movement and embodied expression as a means of establishing healing, wholeness, and reconciliation in individuals and communities. This one really had me buzzing all over when we were done. In fact, in the spirit of the topic and thinking about our bodies, I would invite you to pay attention to your body as you listen. Where do you feel expansiveness or tension or grief or anything else. Don't feel like you need to fix it or combat it. Just notice and breathe with it. I wanted to just tell you the the thing that led me into your work was seeing an article that you wrote in Presbyterians Today about your experiences down in Peru as I believe a young adult volunteer. Is that that's right. experience? So I wondered if you would describe that experience and and tell us about working with uh, the young girls and women that you worked with and what you all did together. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, yeah, as the Young Adult Volunteer Program, it's through the Presbyterian Church USA, and it's very has a very different model than you would imagine the traditional Christian missionary model is, and and thankfully so because it really positions the volunteer, and we're not we're not called missionaries. That's a very sort of outdated term now, I think, because of the injustices that emerged around that. And so as a volunteer going into a community where you are a uh, a racial outsider, a kind of socioeconomic differential there, um, you're really invited to work alongside an already existing um, community that has its own um, value sets and approaches to solving really difficult social problems. And in the case of my placement in central Peru, it was uh, just this pervasive child sexual violence, domestic violence, 
Um, and I came in again as a volunteer um, without really a specific job description. And that was also intentional. It was the expectation that you would immerse yourself in this community, build trusting relationships, and they would identify with you where your gifts were best placed. And you know, on a, on a resume, I, I talked about my undergraduate work and, you know, working in um, Washington, D.C. as a legislative intern. But the thing at the bottom of the list was that I'm a dancer. I grew up dancing, um, classical ballet, modern dance in college. Um, I performed with a modern dance collective after college, but it was always sort of this peripheral extracurricular, something that I'm deeply passionate about, but it was never sort of the the professional path that I was intending to go on. But as callings are often revealed, it's a passion that you have that meets a critical need in the world. And it became very evident soon that my connection with this group of teenagers who are survivors of sexual abuse and sexual violence called the Tamar Collective, named after Tamar in the Hebrew Bible, uh, who's a survivor of incest, um, this collective was a support group for these young women and I just became friendly with the girls and they, I think, really accepted me into their, um, a, a really intimate community that required a lot of trust um, and a lot of space uh, for them to be who they are and develop their autonomy. Um, and it just evolved organically that my love of movement and dance could help open up some pathways of healing with this group of about 10 to 12 young women um, to express themselves corporeally, to be able to really experience again, a sense of value and worth, like innate worth in their physical bodies as a pathway toward building a sense of, again, autonomy, um, self-expression, confidence, all of those aspects that were so critical to their recovery from the violence that they endured. So we had a blast. I mean, I, I have to say it was fun in, in this sort of tragically bittersweet way. It was the most meaningful work I've ever done, mm. like so, hands yeah. down. Yeah. So am I understanding correctly that they didn't necessarily have a kind of movement component to the Tamar Collective and you brought that in or was that already part of their kind of work that they were doing? It was not formally part of it. I would say the the class sessions was usually a Saturday morning based around crafting. Uh, the, the, the girls are incredibly talented artists and the psychologists that oversaw this collective would bring in these sort of arts therapy, arts crafts kind of thing, but nothing that was specifically part of the body. But what was so interesting is culturally in Peru dance, and in particular folkloric dance, is, is incredibly uh rich and connected to kind of national identity and local identity and in fact this particular town has a specific folkloric dance for that town and all the girls know it so it's like these children regardless of what region you grow up in in Peru are learning this tradition of like how does movement connect to identity and culture um and i think it's really important for kind of women to um, develop that. So these girls are kind of already primed for this kind of work. It was very natural and very easy, but it wasn't formally part of their program, I would say. It just reinforced, I think, knowledge, embodied knowledge that was already there. And I just kind of maybe helped facilitate it, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
That's beautiful. I, I'm curious not to um, delve too deeply into specific cases or, or things that you remember, but I, and you can kind of educate me on this because this is what you're studying now, but I wonder whether there were times or, or individuals who had a hard time accessing that or, or sort of feeling like they could be grounded in their bodies because of the sexual violence that they had experienced and maybe how that culture of a, a place where dance is, is part of the culture. Does that work against that? Does that help make that easier? I, I'm just curious how that all comes into play. That's a good question. And I would say the answer is both. And it was both difficult, but also in some ways, um, a natural pathway, like I said, with sort of this cultural um, openness toward movement. But I think the particular age demographic I was working with made it also much more conducive because I, I, and gosh, you talk about the examples of some of these women. I mean, they, they're horrific what these teenagers, adolescents went through. Yet I think there is a bodily resilience within young children, which I hate to even sort of lean on that because I think that's what allows people to somehow think that they can abuse young people, that resilience. So it can be taken advantage of. It is so fragile and so precious. But it is actually what I think allowed these young women to be so open to it, because despite the absolute trauma that their bodies and their psyches have been through, um, there was a very accessible place of playfulness um, and openness um, and, and joyfulness that I actually feel working with the older uh, women and by no means old. I mean, a lot of these women were in their 20s and 30s who were experiencing domestic violence, it was harder to access that. There was a lot more shame that got really embedded in their physical being. Um, not that it wasn't impossible to break through that and have sort of these expressive movement experiences, but it was harder to access. Um, so I think the age a little bit made it possible. I think the trusting environment that they had already been a part of with this human rights organization that I worked with, the psychologists are just brilliant, compassionate individuals. So a lot of the hard work had already been done. And then I came in. So these were women definitely who had already gone through a lot of work in their recovery too. I think mm -hmm. that's why there was a lot of openness as well. Mm. Got it. Mm. Beautiful. So when you came back after your, was you there a year um, to yes. Yeah. Yeah. Came back. And, uh, what, what was next for you after you having gone through that experience and, and experienced this maybe adjacent transformation, or at least walking with experience, what came next for you? Well, I, I was really lucky in that I actually had a job waiting for me, which is very rare, I think, for people who are either in the Peace Corps or who do sort of service internationally. It's, it's really hard to reenter into the United States where um, just even coming back to the grocery store and all the choices and all the access to material um, like solutions to life was very overwhelming, but I had been offered a job while I was in Peru at a homeless shelter in my hometown that I had volunteered at prior to being in Peru. And it's a women and children's homeless shelter called the Family Life Center in upstate New York. And I came on as an assistant director. Um, I, similarly, without a specific job description, it was very much a journey with 
the community that's here in the time that you are with us. And I ultimately was able to almost mimic the work I was doing in Peru, but contextualized within the specific needs of this new population. I led devotionals in the morning with my guitar, very much bringing in, again, embodied kind of healing arts. I brought in a yoga teacher to do regular yoga with homeless women who had never, ever gotten near that kind of physical healing. Um, and, And doing some of kind of the expressive movement that I did um, in Peru and very much seeing these similarities within these two communities of of very young women who had endured more than anyone should. So I was really lucky and I could have a place to use what I had learned in Peru um, and journey with those relationships. So I'm very, just, I feel very lucky that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. Prior to your time as a young adult volunteer, you you said you had studied ballet and you were a dancer. Had you done this kind of expressive, I mean, I think probably dance class has that component, but this is a different, there's a therapeutic and a healing kind of aspect to it. Had had you done that before or had training in it or anything like that? No, I, I really feel the dance background I had was was very individualistic. It was very much like a runner on a track. You know, yes, you have a team, um, but you're really sort of developing and cultivating the skill in your own body. Um, but I knew kind of instinctually, I think, as I became a teenager, and I, I studied since I was the age of three, I did feel that there's a spiritual element to it. I mean, I, I think I've always been a person of faith, more kind of an open spiritualist person that just so happened to go to a Presbyterian church. But dance for me, I think, did open up a place of of this holy, sacred knowing, um, embodied knowing. Um, so I think I knew that there was something therapeutic there. I mean, I knew that going to dance was the only thing that got me out of anxieties in middle school. Um, you know, interpersonal traumas when you're in high school, it was the safe place. Um, and so I think it, it really was the culmination of me being mature enough, you know, when I was 25 in Peru, having had my own experiences of just self-doubt and confusion in life and turning to movement, turning to yoga. Um, so it, I don't know if I would have been able to do the kind of work I did in Peru earlier um, in life. And I, I think I needed others to sort of reveal it for me as opposed to this like kind of premeditated, like, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, but it, it was always there now that I look back. In fact, I, the dance school that I grew up in was an abandoned monastery. I, the dance studio was a dilapidated barn um, where Love there it. was a real, that, that thin place. You know, we were talking about Scotland the other day, like the real thin place. Yes, I think I right. knew that dance had that capacity. Mm-hmm. I love the way you framed that and, and, I wanted to to drill down into that because I think sometimes those of us who work in ministry, however we define that, think we have to have some kind of credential, you know, before we can do certain things or, or stretch people in a certain way that may also stretch ourselves. And, and it's such a good example of you take what you have, but then you also, as you said, you had the spiritual maturity at that point to be able to, to kind of put it into a slightly different angle a little bit of a different perspective, but it was always, it was always there. Mm. Um, that's, that's very empowering. I think for those of us, you know, and this is is a very kind of Western, (laughs) it's sort of, we need to have 
the program that we use, the the right. designation, the degree, the certification, and and no, that's in some ways those things get in our way. So, mm. um, so uh, after that that time, you you somehow at some point went into uh, went to seminary and ended up as a as a pastor. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, I think that discernment really took root when I was at the homeless shelter. So after Peru, I worked in this women and children's homeless shelter for about three years. Um, and I think one of the major things that I realized was I, I was emotionally burnt out. I, I was at capacity with the ability for myself to be able to sort of pour out and give. I think my vessel needed to be filled. I, I knew it needed to be filled in a spiritual sense. I didn't know if I ultimately wanted to be a pastor. So when I went to, I went to Louisville Presbyterian Seminary, I was a dual enrolled student with their marriage and family counseling program. So I, I knew I had enough of this bend toward counseling with Peru and, and um, the, it, it was a rescue mission that the homeless shelter was part of. So I was doing a lot of that anyway. I felt gated toward that, but I also felt with counseling and therapy there was in a secular sense in the clinical counseling room, this expectation that there's something that the clinician can do to help fix a problem as opposed to, you know, when you think of spiritual direction, that third chair in the room, there was a real absence of that. So I think I always was gravitating more towards sort of a spiritual uh, journey with um, approach to, um, you know, social issues, relational conflicts. Um, and so when I went to seminary, it wasn't really an intention to come out as a pastor, but I had one professor in particular, um, it, my Hebrew studies professor, that just put women on the map for me in the Hebrew Bible, in, in their, their beautiful and tragic narratives. And I, I was really intrigued. So I think ultimately I was kind of kicking and screaming a little bit with this call, but then I just bulldozed through seminary, loved every minute of it and got a call immediately after as a solo pastor of a church in um, Delaware. So I, I kind of just went in that direction. Um, and, and I'm happy it did, but, but I, I have actually left Paris ministry after eight years and also happy to have done that as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I want to dig into some of what you have noticed. And I also am ex experiencing and, and aware of, and I think any of us who have spent any time in any kind of Protestant, uh, at least um, kind of white Protestant context knows we love to live up in our heads. And mm. I, one of the things that I have done over the years, uh, because my previous book was about improvisation as a kind of spiritual and life practice, and that is a very body-oriented art form. Yes. Um, and I have done workshops and things and retreats with 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 churches, and and there's some intrigue there. People are kind of interested in it and a little scared about it. And my experience is that that people often do a lot better with the kind of cognitive improv stuff where you're like doing word association or you're making up a story or you're having to kind of brainstorm than the kind of building a scene using your bodies. Right. And, and I'm just curious what going into that kind of, I mean, I don't know about the specific parishes that you were in, but I can extrapolate given that we're both, and we have that kind of 
joking thing that is kind of nauseating too about calling ourselves the frozen chosen and, and just, <laughs> you know, let's not wear that as a badge of honor. No, <laughs> no, this is, not, this is not good. <laughs> so I, um, without kind of asking you to, to share more than you, you would like to, I'm just curious, having had this experience of such rich embodiment and integration of all of those aspects of yourself to, you know, go into a, a system that I think is very esoteric and very cognitively oriented. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky, it's a tricky balance because I don't think they're naturally wedded this embodied spirituality and Protestant particular Presbyterian um, theology and practice. But I think coming out of Louisville seminary where it just so happened, I was really surrounded by a lot of wonderful colleagues who were open to this embodied movement. And we did liturgical dance in the chapel and we did a lot of stuff related to kind of domestic violence prevention within the church using kind of the, the um, skills I gained in Peru. I kind of just tried to like bridge that right into that first call. And I remember I started in October, um, you know, this is eight, nine years ago. And for that Christmas, one of the congregants, a very good friend of mine, who's a modern dancer, I asked her, would you be willing to do an interpretive movement of the Magnificat of, of Mary um, and that beautiful poem, um, really a hymn of praise. Um, and we choreographed it together and she did a, she did the movement while I read the scripture passage um, from Luke. And I, I mean, thankfully for her being a congregant willing to do that, I think made it really accessible as opposed to me doing the movement. I was always very conscious of me as the pastor, not being the one that did it in a performative way. Oh, only the woman in the robe can do this. No, it's everybody in the pew um, can do it. And so I just right from the get go, just inserted it gradually, not too much at a time, but you know, in the benediction, very much inviting the congregation to use their bodies. A lot of movement around the communion table. I never used a script. I never used a podium in front of the communion table because that is the ultimate embodied expression of the incarnation. And if you waste that by having it just be so stilted with, um, you know, pre-written words and stuck behind a podium, it's, I I do think it's a wasted opportunity. So I just used as much as I could. And there's so much in Christian theology. This is an embodied faith. It's just that the church system um, as a more cognitive kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, tradition has has kind of stripped that away. So it's it was very accessible for me as the pastoral leader to do that. But every once in a while, you'd get someone who was a little bit like, eh, that doesn't really feel right or okay. And it was just always an invitation for me to say, well, let's talk about the theology of the incarnation, God in the flesh. And people tended to to get there. So I was surprised. And I, I brought that to my, my last call as well. So it, it, yeah, it made me happy. I, I thought, wow, this is a space that I can use this and until, until I couldn't. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do we want to go there or not go there? I mean, I think it's the elephant in the room a little bit. I, I can definitely say a couple words about why I'm not in ministry anymore. Um, related to this embodied aspect. And it's an important subject because it relates to the the autonomy of female leaders, which is very much part of this. But my doctoral research is on female clergy boundaries and psychological safety. And so when you have a female leader 
who is open in this way and kind of an embodied way, um, it really rubs up against the patriarchy. And so, and that's men and women. I would say that in my last call, there was a lot of internalized sexism, both in, um, in female congregants and then male congregants who the kind of sort of outpouring of whether it be confidence or spiritual empowerment that comes from kind of a female clergy that can be very emasculating for Mm -hmm. certain men. And I think some women resent it in the sense that maybe in their own walks of life, weren't able to have that kind of embodied autonomy. And so it's really interesting that the the biggest opportunity for the church to kind of evolve through this kind of leadership, embodied leadership, I think is the very thing that can actually disturb and disrupt people so much that uh, they run out young female clergy. And I got ran out of my last, my last church and Mm. and I'm okay saying it last Mm -hmm. year. I probably would have been in tears right now talking Mm. about it, but. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I wish it weren't such a common story, but I think you've really, really hit on something that is um, a, a dynamic that, that pervades a lot of, of places and it can be very threatening. But I wanted to read to you, um, if, if you would uh, permit me to read back, you back to you, uh, but I loved, um, let me see if I can find, whoops, from your article um, from Presbyterians Today. So you write, is it okay if I write, if I read to you? Your sure. Okay. Despite this redemptive message of God in our own flesh, The Presbyterian tradition has historically been quite a disembodied faith. We worship with our minds and preach words of impact, but our bodies remain unmoved. Our prayers and confessions are deeply intellectual, yet they lack visceral immediacy. As Presbyterians, we are not alone in our hesitancy to cultivate embodied faith practices. The Christian faith continues to have a fraught relationship with the body due to harmful interpretations of biblical texts as they relate to sin, sexuality, gender, and the body. For centuries, such interpretations have led to the cultivation of particularly damaging theologies centered around fear, shame, and isolation of the body, in particular the female body. And I wondered if you would just expand on that a little bit and maybe the second part of the question is how do we, how do we get out of this, this legacy? Yeah. How do we shake off what we need to shake off in that? Cause it's so deeply embedded. Yeah. And it's centuries in the making and right. that's, that's the real devastating thing. Um, and, and it's not even just the theology. I was doing a little more research for one of the assignments I had for my, my doctoral program. And there was a real, there was a real cultural decision when, Christianity became sort of a state-sponsored religion, you know, in the third century, that the Greco-Roman kind of sexual, dualistic, male versus female, um, sort of mind versus body, and placing them in a hierarchical relationship um, didn't do this any, any favors. And that's been exported to Western culture so that, and truthfully, I, I have seen that scripture has a boatload of pathways out of this. I mean, scripture is the pathway out of this, actually, if you're kind of a a believing Christ conscious person. Um, 
it's full of body redemption. I mean, Christ is the ultimate bodily redemption and the resurrection. And and even in the Hebrew scripture, I mean, some of the unspoken voices of, of female bodily integrity are there. And I'll give an example after this, because she's my favorite heroine of the Bible, hands down. But I think it's just one person, one clergy, one um, church at a time. And to really sing it from the balcony, sing it from the hills that don't be understated in this or secretive um, or minimal in this, oh yeah, we raise our hands during the benediction and then we sit on our hands, you know, for the rest of the service. Um, To do it in a proclamation oriented way like we are living out this embodied faith intentionally i think is is the way to do it um but yeah i mean it's it's so embedded it's so embedded um and then i think the biblical example i'd give is the story of ritzbeth most most i would probably say 99.9 percent of white congregations in the united states do not know who she is but everybody in peru does Everybody in a non-Western, non-first world context who has experienced that sort of corporeal devaluation knows exactly who Rispa is. Um, And she's in the book of Samuel and, and she stands vigil over the slain bodies of her children who were used as sort of this bargaining chip in between these big warring communities. And she said, no, the sacredness of life, regardless of who it is, you will not discard these bodies. And I will stay vigil in front of them on a mountaintop for months until you give them a proper burial. And that was mirrored in Peru because of atrocities that they experienced during the 80s and 90s. And there were unmarked graves of people who only 20 30 years later, we're being brought to life and a collective kind of remembering was happening. Um, so I think it's calling out these traditions and scripture that are already there and saying we will not, we will not let sort of the mainstream sort of Protestantized uh, stories of scripture uh, speak louder than these. Um, there's, there's no reason why Ritzba shouldn't be on the lips of every single clergy at the very least um but you never heard a word from her in seminary even the stated clerk of the presbyterian church he uh uh, kirkpatrick um he guest taught a a class where i was bringing up brits but he had never heard of her and that's the stated clerk of our denomination so there's a lot there we just i think pastoral leaders need to be taught it so yeah i love her Absolutely. Love I do too. And I, I can't remember just recently, I read a reflection about her and I thought, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and what a tragedy, what a, yes. a scandal that, that, that story isn't told. And I think part of it too is, and this kind of gets us into talking a little bit about, about hope or, or how we think about hope or whether hope is even essential as we think about this work that we're doing. But that story, I find that kind of witness and that kind of steadfastness and and just the resistance to say, I'm going to stand here until this is acknowledged to be a very hopeful thing, whether it ever results in what is being advocated for or not. I mean, I, I think, and, mm. and what I 
And, and that ultimately to me is what gives me the, the perseverance to go on is, is what is ours to do, even if we go down fighting for it. Right. Um, I find that very yes. hopeful. Um, but I wanted to, to kind of circle back to your experience in Peru and give you a chance to talk about how you even think about the idea of hope. And I want to give you an opening because we talked about this, you know, when we talked before to say it's not that, that hope was even maybe irrelevant to the whole enterprise. I mean, working with these young women and girls, like how do you think about hope and how, how we think about hope in our country and in our culture and our denomination and and others uh, expressions as you've studied this and, and walked with other communities? That's such a good question. Um, yeah, and and I think you and I had talked a little before too about the the caution with which we use the word hope because it can be really easily diluted and you know band aids band aid solutions. Um, but I think the image that I have um, with working in Peru, in fact, I had I had done a little reflection on it. I think for a sermon at some point, but one of the kind of art therapy activity that I did with the Tamar Collective was to build or to make um, paper cranes um, as sort of this, you know, kind of spiritual Holy Spirit, um, I guess, image of sort of, yeah, resurrection as well, kind of rising above the ashes. But the process of making the cranes was so painstaking and, you know, paper cuts and frustrating sitting there with this crumpled piece of paper that was not making the form and image that you had in mind and starting from scratch. Um, and I, I think that's, that is what hope is. It, it's just a very painstaking process where, and you will get hurt in the pursuit of hope because you are open and vulnerable. Anyone who's hopeful is a vulnerable human being. Um, people who are hopeless have built up those walls and those protective measures to no longer experience that pain. But I think anyone who walks around and I'm a hopeful person. And I think that's why I was so deeply hurt by the church when I left parish ministry, because um, my heart was open when I started the ministry, it was open when I left the ministry and it's what people will do with that open accessibility. And so the hopeful person is a very vulnerable person. And I think when we see hopeful people around us do what we can to not only be hopeful ourselves, but protect their hopefulness. And it's not a naivete. I really don't think hopeful people are naive. In fact, the most hopeful people have seen the worst. You know, if it's if it's real, honest, authentic hope, they have seen it, they've experienced it, they have bled it, and um, they're still open. Mm-hmm. It, it's an absolute miracle to be hopeful in today's age, I would say. Thank you so much for joining us in the Blue Room. Much, much gratitude to Lynn Haran. And for more information on Lynn's research and publications, please visit www.lynnharan.com. That's L-Y-N-N-H-O-R-A-N.com. You can also check out my website, marianmckibbendana.net. And if you liked this podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. I'm Marianne McKibben-Dana, speaking to you from Reston, Virginia, the ancestral land of the Manahoac people. 
This podcast was produced and edited by Nell Dana. Thank you, as always, for listening. Steady on.